podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 245, Beyond the IFR Checkride, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Roseleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Hey folks, welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today we discuss common challenges for IFR pilots and tips not normally covered during IFR training. And joining me today is Russ Rosleski. Hey Russ, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Carl. Thanks. Uh, you are joining us from uh, the middle of America. And, yes, uh, we're, I think we're you had a little rain. Sahara dust. Uh, I think oh, you that's are right. Too. Yes. Yeah. We just cleared up, which is kind of cool. But uh, that was that was actually a challenge. It seemed like it was going to be a challenge for flying, but wasn't too bad. Uh, visibility was decent. I guess is a good way to say it. Decent. I flew on Saturday and uh, down into Texas, and it was three miles of vis, and yeah, it was it was three or less. It, wow. I, yeah, yeah. I, was, I flew an approach on a VFR day because there was no way I was going to find the airport. <laughs> Not with <laughs> <Wow>. that. <laughs> Thank God we got a GPS, but uh, yeah, that's, that's right. cool. That's yeah. cool. Also joining us, uh, Bill English. Bill, hey, welcome, man. How you doing? Hey, hey good. I think the dust is headed our way now. Is it? So. And that's up in the mid-Atlantic mid states. Is yeah. Hard to tell, but I guess it's coming here. Cool, cool. Any uh, interesting flying adventures lately? I know uh, Bill and I had one. Yeah, just, uh, well, that and then with one of our other compadres the very next day, so... Yeah, so cool stuff. And I've got the avocados. They were really good, not quite ripe enough. Yeah, you got to let them sit. Yeah, yeah, sit a little bit longer. But uh, anyway, before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. Take it away, Larry. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. Well, thanks, Larry. Uh, don't forget to go out to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Check out the courses that include uh, the scholarships guide and also career coaching. I know during these times, a lot of people are wondering what they're going to do, especially flight instructors, et cetera, during the period of being furloughed or, or laid off. And we do a lot of coaching along those lines. Have a lot of experience, been doing it for over 20 years, helping people find jobs uh, when they lose them. And also in that scholarships guide, 32 new scholarships, 18 updates, and a new section called scholarships for adults. Adults. Let's do the pre-flight. Anyway, let's move on to news and announcements. We have a new series coming up on the 737 MAX, and it's an analysis by a gentleman who has a lot of experience with the 73 MAX and also both flying and has researched it quite extensively. Go over a couple things like what is a 73 Max? You know, the different iterations of a 737, which is kind of cool. And you're wondering why we're talking about this on a general aviation podcast. And, and you'll be surprised how much we can glean just in general as pilots, obviously, uh, through these, these accidents and, uh, and the analysis there. Uh, quite interesting uh, what, what they come up with with uh, some of the analysis and also conclusions and opinions as to what to do moving forward. We're seeing a lot of training that's being changed uh, both on the GA side and the airline side uh, because of those accidents there. That was uh, a really interesting accident. It's also something in the news lately, and uh, we just want to kind of put it forth there so we can go through the analysis so we can learn from it. So look for that series. It's going to be in between our, our podcasts, so our regular ones are on the 1st and the 15th, and then so on the 8th and the 22nd, you'll uh, hear those. It's a five-part series. Now entering cruise flight. You know, a lot of times, uh, once we get our IFR checkride done and we're ready to get out there in the system, 
we sometimes feel that there's, uh, you know, kind of a gap there because there's real life experience and there's also the training. We can never uh, have enough experience flying IFR and we're always learning. But, you know, there are some problems that uh, I think that, you know, Russ came up with that, that really are repeated quite often. And Russ, you're very active in the IFR training environment. Uh, so um, I think this is something that we all find uh, when we finally get out there and fly with uh, instructors. And I think it's a really good idea. Uh, and I think you would agree, Russ, to, hey, get out there, fly with your instructor, do some real IFR world flying, don't you? It is definitely. I mean, of course, real world IFR flying is different than the ch than check ride prep. You know, no doubt about that. Uh, you know, when you're in training, you're doing you know three, four, five approaches, and you know, all immediately back to back, and then you go fly in the real world, and you got you know an, an hour or two, and you fly one approach, right? So, so it's a little bit different environment. Of course, you know, you, you may be talking with actual ATC instead of your instructor simulating ATC. You've got other people on the radio. You got just a bunch of different things. You know. It, when you're flying real life art, it is just you, you know, often. So, uh, there, so I kind of put together a list for this show of some things that, that I see repeatedly, mostly when I'm doing instrument proficiency work. Yeah. That, that seems to be a lot of what I do with people coming back to me and saying, yeah, Hey, it's been a year since I flew any IFR. Let's go up a few times and fly. And of course, a lot of these, uh, piles I fly with, I did not train for their instrument ratings. So, uh, I get to see a lot of different techniques and things and, and some things that I like and some things I, I, I don't think are so great. And we'll talk about some of those today. Well, that's great. And also, uh, Bill, you've been doing a little bit more with the instructing and I know you went up and flew with one of our compadres. So it'd be kind of interesting. Uh, some of the things that you've come up with in this list. So, um, guys, let's get started with it though. So, uh, the first one, I think, uh, let's see, that would be Russ. The first one comes up with you. So let's go ahead and, and dive into some of these things that, uh, don't sometimes get covered during IFR training. Yeah. So this, this is an interesting one that I see repeatedly. And, you know, I always, always taught and uh, that it's a good idea when you reach the final approach fix on any instrument approach, you've got everything set before that point, you reach the final approach fix and you put the gear down if applicable, of course, you make a, uh, you know, maybe a slight power adjustment and then you pretty much do nothing else until you get the runway environment in sight. Uh, the idea of course, is you're, you're in the clouds, you know, you, uh, you want to have a nice stabilized approach. There are, I'm sure some, you know, different, uh, airplanes that require different techniques and such, but in general for, for the light GA aircraft I've been flying, I teach once you're passive FAF before you break out of the clouds, you do nothing to change your configuration, nothing. Uh, that, that includes, you know, not, you know, pushing the prop lever up or, uh, you know, putting in more flaps or, you know, dramatically changing the power, you know, unless you need to, you should have all that set. And it's, it's interesting because, um, <laughs> I was, you know, I, I do kind of, like I said, kind of preach this and I was flying with, flying with a pilot eh, a month or two ago and, and he uh, and we're coming down final, and, and this is again just a proficiency flight. This is not a real, you know, not training for a check ride or anything. And he's coming down final, and he's just got the the needles are nailed. I mean, they are locked in. I thought the indicator was broken, you know. So, uh, and he's perfect. And then about halfway down final, I guess he, he thought, oh, I I need to have another notch of flaps to land. So he puts in our notch of flaps real quick, and I just kind of watch him because I've told him this before. And sure enough, what happened? He put in a notch of flaps. He ballooned up. Um, he went above glide slope, and he spent the rest, you know, the next two or three miles of final, trying to get everything back and situated. He was nailed before, and then he put in that one notch of flaps, and it made his life so much harder. <laughs> so, uh, so, and, and then after that, he said, "Man, now I see why you, you don't want me to do anything." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, you know, if unless your airplane requires it, or you know, your." I don't know. Oh, Carl, tell me. So in the airline world, what, how's this work? Yeah. So normally we are uh, configured. We, we continually decelerate where I work and uh, mostly configured by the final approach fix. So I can't say it's a hard, fast rule. Uh, but, you know, we have a, a we have to be at a thousand feet stable, which one of the things includes configuration. So we have to be totally configured. There are instances where we aren't fully configured at the final approach fix. Uh, and that actually is something that, especially when you're flying real fast, 
if you really are not already slowed down and you're not configured, it can really bite you. Uh, but yeah, we, we actually, it, it's a little bit different, but in general, you're right. I mean, we want to be pretty much configured, have most of all of our checklists done, but uh, you, you'd be surprised uh, how late we finally get the final set of flaps. But with that said, we're flying with two people all the time. Right. So when I'm asking for the flaps, I'm telling someone else to do it. I'm concentrating on flying the plane. I'm not concentrating on any of those configurations. So that's the that's the difference here, I think, is, is we have lots of other people helping us in the cockpit. So I, I agree when I'm flying alone, IFR, I try not to change a darn thing, except I will do, you know, obviously a, a checklist at the end, say, oh, did I do my... Uh, I pushed a prop lever for it or uh, accidentally if I didn't, I'm just checking them. I'm not configuring. I think that's kind of the point we're trying to make here. Yeah, I think in what you said was a good point about having a two-person crew there, Carl. I mean, you know, like GA, you know, it's, it's just us. Our focus really needs to be on on flying that final, keeping those needles centered. Uh, in in virtually all light GA airplanes, if you break out anywhere above minimums, you're going to have plenty of time. If you want to get in more flaps or do anything like that, you're going to have plenty of time. Let me think about a, you know, a, a 172. Even if you break out a 200 feet, you still got like, you know, 30 seconds before you get to the runway, right? So you got tons of time uh, to, if you really need to reconfigure. But plus, you know, generally, you know, you only need a couple thousand feet to land most, uh, you know, like GA airplanes. So, you know, if you got a 5,000, 8,000, 10,000 foot runway, you got lots, lots of room there. Don't worry about it too much. So again, when you say uh, configure a final approach fix, I think you said this, the airspeed's one of those big ones too, as far as not reconfiguring there. I mean, is you're set, everything's done. Yeah. I, I like to have everything done. Airspeed's on so, the, the gear, the flaps, the powers is set, everything as much as possible. So I see a lot of people, especially in GA, reconfiguring as far as their speed is concerned after the final approach fix. And that that throws them. I like what you gave as the example of the flaps. But, uh, you know, you see people having it have everything nailed. And then they decide, you know what, I'm going to slow down 10, 15 knots. And then it just goes off the rails. Uh, even that can actually uh, run. If you're really experienced, I get it. There's people out to say, I do that all the time. I understand. But in general, how much do we, you know, really fly IFR down to minimums? It's, it's a real good idea to be to be configured I agree. you know yeah it's interesting carl with the airspeed too because i've seen exactly that you know where someone's coming down real fast or you know, maybe a little faster and they say okay i'm going to slow down even if they're using the autopilot it can cause problems uh they pull the power back well okay the autopilot needs to make some trim changes well depending on how fast the autopilot reacts in a lot of them they end up going below glide path and well, then they see that, so they push the power up, and then then it just becomes monkeying with the throttle to, to help the autopilot stay on track. So, yeah, don't you know, use your autopilot to help you. Don't try to fight it. Right, that's for sure. So I think that's some great advice. Uh, try not to configure after a final approach fix. I, obviously, if you have to, you have to, like if you forgot to put the gear down. Also, uh, if you're not configured beyond that, and I know we talk about being stabilized, uh, there's one other thing we can do, right? We can always, you know, fly the mist and go around. Go around. Yeah. And that's something I think we, uh, as a matter of fact, that I was looking at that today, watching someone do an approach. And after about the third bounce on the on the landing, I was, I was wishing the person would go around. It's kind of the same thing is that, you know, if we, we aren't ready to land and uh, we aren't configured properly, it's just, just go around. Go do the mist, uh, which brings up the other point. You know, you should always have that in the back of your mind, right, uh, as far as going. It should always be a mist approach in your mind. Uh, that's for sure. So I like the idea. Final approach fix, uh, no configuration changes. Uh, so what what are some of the other things that uh, you came up with that you, uh, if if that's enough, you want to talk about there? Uh, yeah, I, th I think that's that's good there. Of course, if anybody has any feedback, they're certainly welcome to write in, and we'll we'll handle that on our show definitely. Um, okay, the other one, and uh, we had talked about uh, and interviewed the uh, the pod the host for opposing bases. Uh, they did a podcast a few episodes ago, number one twenty six, uh, where they talked about vectors to final and i thought it was really very interesting because it was about how air traffic controllers have to kind of you know, how the geometry works out when they're giving you vectors to final and the intercept angles and how your speed you know affects where they turn you and you know if they're trying to get you in tighter then they're really you know have a narrow window to get you just really interesting and in all this all the considerations they have but there's a couple things that i thought of after that 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 relate to the pilot side of the equation and 
One of these is if you understand the the considerations that ATC has, uh, you'll see why this is this can be a bit of a problem. And that's where I, I see this a lot, where the, the controller goes through the whole your five miles from final approach fix, turn right heading one five zero, maintain at or above three thousand till established on the localizer, cleared for the ILS approach. Right. The most important part of that whole thing is that turn, right? The turn to heading one five zero. So, well, then what what do we get? We get the Pilot reading it back, they read back five miles from the final approach fix, turn right heading 150, maintain air about 3000, cleared approach. Usually, I say it a little bit slower now as we're trying to write numbers down or whatever. And all this time, the airplane's still moving, right? It's still moving towards that final approach course. And, and I've seen it where this whole process of the controller reading instructions, then the pilot reading instructions, then the pilot, you know, making sure it writes it down and then maybe turn, then maybe turning the heading bug and then turning the airplane. Can take quite a while. Meanwhile, that that course line maybe has passed you by now, or you know maybe it, it it's becoming a really really tight. So, what I try to do is number one, you should have a pretty good idea what that heading is going to be. It's going to be about thirty degrees to final, so you can figure ahead of time what what the turn is going to be, so you know it's coming. And once that controller starts giving me that clearance and includes the heading. I'm probably going to start the heading and then then worry about reading the rest of it. That's a little bit of a technique thing. You know, not everybody may agree with that. You know, they might want the whole thing to be done. But I found that that works out pretty well in most cases where you just get the turn started as you're reading it back. So with that said, do you think it's a – I think so one of the things that's a nuance here is the fact that you talked about visualizing, you know, where you're going to turn and in which direction, that type of thing. So it's probably a, a really good idea to keep a step ahead uh, and, and kind of visualize what the next turn is going to be. I know that can bite you also, but it's good to visualize what you think might be the next turn, right? Oh, absolutely. And of course, now with moving maps, it's it's vastly easier than it used to be. But uh, you know, if you should be always keeping track of where you are and what you're going to be uh, probably going to be issued. So in my case, you know, if I expected to get a 150 and I didn't get it and I went through final, well, now I know that he's probably going to give me a different vector to get back to final, right? So I should have that good situational awareness. And, and that really feeds into kind of a, a second topic as well uh, with situation awareness. So thanks for bringing that up is that when you get that, you know, in my case, heading one five zero to intercept the final approach course in the past, before moving maps, we didn't really know where that was going to have us intercept final. We just had to trust that the controller was, you know, putting us in a good spot, but I've seen numerous cases and you know, if it's windy or whatever, where that, heading that they assigned is not really going to work out. It might cause me to intercept final after the final approach fix, for example, or really, really close to it where I'm not going to have much of a chance to descend if I still need to, or to get lined up or get any, get things configured and set, which we talked about in the first point. So keep your situational awareness. If, you know, if you're looking on your iPad or on your, uh, your GPS, and if it doesn't look like it's going to work out quite right, let the controller know, you know, say, Hey, I, I need 10, 10 more left for, you know, to make this work, whatever. Hey, can you give me 10 left? And uh, they're not going to have a problem with that because, <laughs> because if it doesn't work, then you're going to go missed and just mess up their whole plan anyway. Right. So yeah, they, they want it to work, but they're not going to have a problem with that. So, so just like you were saying, Carl, keep that situational awareness and, and use some, you know, your, your background and experience in pilot and you know, Hey, this isn't going to work <laughs> and let them know. Yeah. Query the controller. I think that's really important. And you know, it's like they, and they'll give you a heads up. Usually if you're sitting there and you get anxious and you're like, gosh, you know, are they going to turn me? And usually they'll tell you, they should tell you if they're going to turn you or fly you, excuse me, across final. Right. Uh, but it is a good idea to ask, especially if they're not too busy. Now, if they're super busy, you have that conundrum. Do you want to, do you want to actually interrupt them? Uh, and then sometimes they'll come out and says, yes, I know I flew you through final turn left heading, you know, zero nine zero and intercept the final approach course. And that happens. Uh, so there, there's some judgment there, right? Well, there is certainly. And I remember one case where I was Oh, what was it? I was vec. They they took me across final, and then they gave me a vector that was going to reintercept. But I could tell by the geometry of it, it wasn't it wasn't going to work if I took that new heading to intercept from the other side. So I just told the controller, 
that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, give, give, give me, give me a box back around. And, and the controller just took me out and, you know, boxed me around and it, you know, it added four minutes to the flight or you know, something like that. It was no big deal. Yeah. It's, an, it's interesting when we, a lot of times we think that the controller is making a mistake or whatever. And, and, you know, what, and sometimes they, they have a change. There's a change in wind direction. There's one other thing that I always suggest to people in this situation is if you can do it and the controllers love this is tell them, you know, what's the winds at your altitude? Because most of us have those readouts on our iPads or uh, on our GPS that tell us what the winds are. That is a, a huge help, especially if you see the winds changing rapidly and and that could be really different between, say, three, 4,000 feet in the ground. And that alone ha- alleviates a lot of the problems with the... Uh, and if you constantly hear a controller maybe missing the turn sometimes, it's best to kind of tell them that. So uh, really good, great example, though. But uh, knowing when the vector of the final isn't working out, uh, it's, it's you know upon both of us, the controllers and also uh, and the pilots, to make sure that we let somebody know, that's for sure. So what's the next one we have on the list here, Russ? Okay, one more for me for now, then I'll take a little break. All right, so mm-hmm. uh, this, this is a simple one. I think many people probably know this, but, uh, but it's really useful, when, especially when you're, when you're trying to track a course down final. Um, most of us have you know, some kind of a uh, you know, magenta line display, and this, this does maybe cross into the area of following the magenta line, but it sure is a useful trick. <laughs> okay. Um, so you've got a, a wind correction. You're coming down fine and you've got a wind correction, right? So maybe it's, you know, five, seven degrees or something, right? To, to one side. If you, if you, as you're flying your heading and trying to figure out what that wind correction is, if you look over at your GPS and see, hey, that magenta line, my track line is pointing straight up well, that's your wind correction. That means whatever heading you're on now is what you need to maintain that track. You know, so, so if you see that magenta line straight up and down, put your heading bug on whatever heading you're on right now. And, and that will work for a while <laughs> until you descend in the changing, changing wind or something. But, uh, but that's a, an extremely useful technique and takes a lot of the guesswork that we used to have to put into figuring out that wind correction. So pretty simple, but it's very effective. So basically, you know, keep your heading bug centered uh, on whatever, you know, your heading is to track uh, that course inbound. Uh, so that's, that's quite important because, uh, you know, you may, that gives you so much situational awareness, uh, especially on a go-around too, you know, or on a missed approach, uh, either one that helps out quite a bit. Uh, so really, that's some great advice. Uh, how many of us do that? I'm not sure. Uh, and I'm sure that some, I've seen some that, auto uh, center that heading bug. So that's kind of interesting too. Uh, or when you, and, and it's different on every airplane, a lot of different planes I've flown. So say you pull the heading a, a bug or something like that, it'll center it to whatever heading you're on. Uh, so some awesome advice. Great stuff there, uh, Russ. I'm going to kind of jump in with that whole thing too. Um, and these are great useful tools, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, the the track, you talk about the course and the track, and basically our course is, you know, basically the between, say you're flying between two different airports, that's going to be your course. You may have to go to a VOR and change direction, et cetera. But I think this word track, um, a lot of people get confused of, and that's basically uh, along the ground. Uh, what you're following is a good, uh, simple description of what that track is. Uh, and one of the things that I've noticed is, as we start flying, uh, we wind up referring to track and referring to course. And in most of our our you know GPSs these days, like for instance on the four thirty, let's use something I know, it has this desired track to get to your uh, de- destination, and uh, you know it figures out you know what what you're supposed to fly that heading it'll actually come up on the heading bug like you said you can center that uh and if you hit the nav mode on your gps of course you're you're going along that desired track over the ground um but one of the things is is that a lot of times like you said the the heading and the course and the track don't match and you're like well why is that and obviously it's never calm winds is it so that's one of the solutions there and we sometimes I find we forget about that. That's one of those skills 
um, that actually goes away sometimes. Uh, so it's really, really important. Uh, so also, when we're talking about track, because this happens sometimes, we ask for, uh, we want to be 20 miles to the right of our track, which a lot of these GPSs can do. We need to specify that. Um, if we're going to do that, uh, we also need to specify some of these folks go fly down in the Caribbean, especially you know from Florida and stuff, and we fly these tracks, and we might be out of radar contact for a while, et cetera. And, and then we wind up you know, talking to the controller and saying, I'm going to turn right 20. Well, 20 what? 20 degrees, 20, 20 nautical miles to the right of my track. And so that's really important to understand that term. I know that that's going to happen you know to some people where they're not used to doing the tracks and stuff so kind of keep that in mind that if you're talking course there's a course there's a heading heading is the heading you're flying uh, looking at your heading bug that type of thing and so be really careful when that happens uh, and so one of the things that we really need to do is make sure that we understand that whole track and that whole course but uh, basically that tracks you know it's going to be Going along the, the ground. So when you are talking to a controller and he says, or she says to you, you know, turn right to a heading, you know, that's a heading. Uh, and you turn left, intercept the course. You know how to intercept that course to your destination. It could be, and that changes along the way. It also, if we're told to be 20 nautical miles right of our track, we know what to do. Uh, so that leads to something else, especially for some of those that are starting to fly a little more advanced and going out over the water a little bit, you know, out of radar and there's some, you know, no, no coverages, especially, you know, we're talking in the Bahamas over the Gulf of Mexico. I know a lot of folks that do that, uh, you know, that whatever aircraft you're flying, 210, et cetera. One thing that we get confused on is we'll go out over the water or in general, not just over the water. We talk about this term radar contact and that radar contact, and I think a lot of people don't realize that we have radar contact. Uh, that's meaning that the controller has radar contact with your aircraft. They are giving you, they are actually now telling you, I see you, right? Okay, that's radar contact. So at that point, we have to figure, okay, if I have radar contact, does that mean I'm getting separation and also, I'm going to be clear of terrain, and that's not the case. Not until they start giving you a heading and you start nav, they give you a navigation, will you actually get that type of separation. And this is what's interesting. It happens right away for most people. So, say that you're flying, and the guy and the controller says, the guy or gal says, radar contact, turn left to heading 050, intercept Victor 152. Uh, at that point, yes. Uh, so there is going to be some separation uh, from terrain and traffic. But if they just say radar contact, not yet. You know, it's radar contact, stand by. Uh, and then eventually they're, they're going to give you an actual heading uh, and vectors or direct to. And that means they're giving you separation. So I think that, that's a subtle difference. It's, same thing happens when we're taking off. You know, it's radar contact uh, on, on a departure, say. And that's something that we see a, a lot of times, obviously, uh, getting back to something we see on like a 172, radar contact. And then shortly after, you might hear turn left heading to, you know, 050, climb maintain 3000, or they may say turn left direct to XYZ VOR. Now they're giving you that separation from terrain and traffic. So it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I think we don't, we don't really realize when that radar contact said, because normally right after they say it, they start giving us a vector and navigation. Uh, so there's a, you know, it's a subtle difference there. Listen for it. Uh, and, uh, just know that you really need to make sure that you're clear of, uh, terrain, uh, while, uh, you are under radar contact, but not being vectored or they're, uh, sending you towards a navigational aid. So, so that was my, uh, little thing about radar contact. I think that's something that's really, really important. Uh, and it keeps you clear of terrain and it's your own responsibility. Another thing that, I think is important is keeping clear of terrain during uh, your departures. And actually, this is this is Russ's topic. So, Russ, I will actually hand you over to that one uh, as far as the the SIDS and the and the climb gradients. Okay, great, Carl. Yeah, uh, I I got my instrument rating in uh, Southeast Virginia, very coastal, very flat. I don't remember actually even talking 
about <laughs> departure procedures, being quizzed on them, having anything in my check ride about them, anything. Um, so it took, you know, after that, after I started flying, you know, real IFR, like you talked about in the beginning to, to figure some of that stuff out because they're just in many parts of the country, there just is not this concern. You don't have really any obstacles. A lot of the U S is pretty flat, <laughs> you know, but, but you get into the mountainous areas and you have climb gradients, uh, on departure procedures, uh, which if, if you have covered departure procedures, uh, in your training, you should be well aware of climb gradients. Um, if you haven't, you know, you definitely get that way. I mean, you know, the, the concern is, of course, there's a mountain in front of you or off to the side, the way you're turning or whatever, and your airplane has to be capable of climbing at least that steep. Now, these climb gradients are specified in feet per nautical mile, not feet per minute like we usually think of. Um, so it might say you know, the climb gradient requirement is 300 feet per nautical mile. And so you got to do some math. Well, there's tables both in the uh, FA publications and the Jefferson publications about, you know, if you're climbing out at 90 knots or 120 knots or whatever, what climb um, rate that requires. So you can do that calculation. And if you can't make it, well, you need to pick a different departure or pick a different day or <laughs> wait till the weather clears or, or unload some cargo or, <laughs> you know, so you can make the climb rate or whatever. But there's, there are surprisingly climb gradients in places that you might not expect. And that's really what I wanted to mention here on, on some of these SIDs, these standard instrument departures. I mean, there's, there are several right here in Oklahoma city. Now Oklahoma city is not known for being very mountainous, right? We don't have a whole lot of obstacles. We've got tall, some tall antenna towers around, but uh, they're usually out of the way. Um, but some of these uh, SIDs have on them uh, a climb gradient requirement of 500 feet per nautical mile to uh, all the one I was looking at here was to about 800 feet above the ground, 500 feet per nautical mile. Well, Carl, for your fancy uh, shiny jet there, that may not be a problem, but you know, if you're taking off in a 172 climbing at 90 knots, 500 feet per mile requires a 750 foot per minute climb rate. That's pretty sporty for a 172, <laughs> you know, especially if it's a hot day and you got all your friends on board, whatever. Right. So, can you make that climb gradient? If you can't, you shouldn't accept that SID. How, how do you figure that out, uh, Russ, as far as trying to uh, figure out what if you can make that climb gradient? And, well, uh, all, all flight instructors have a built-in calculator in their head is issued to us, <laughs> which is what, how I did that. Now, um, you know, there there is probably a rule of thumb, and if you know it, Carl, please tell me because I really don't know it. But uh, there are tables in uh in both the fa and the jet books that will tell you that uh it's you know you can basically figure that at 60 knots you're going one mile forward every minute right and, and mm -hmm. go from there so uh for a 500 foot per mile climb gradient if you're going climbing at 120 knots you got to be able to do a thousand feet a minute uh and if like i said if, if you can't well pick a different departure you don't accept that clearance or do something to uh, that you so to make so you can make that climb gradient. So I, I guess something even more rudimentary than that is that, and this is something I don't think we do often enough, and, and uh, get some heat from this. We can look at our manuals, right, and figure out can we do a thousand feet per minute? Maybe we can. Uh, maybe we're the only one in the airplane, and yeah, uh, sure. you know, I know my Cherokee could do it with just me in the airplane. If I put Bill in, no. But speak for yourself. <laughs> but but it's not Bill. I'm not, you know, it's just adding a little bit extra weight would would not allow me to go a thousand feet per minute. That's what I'm trying to say, Bill. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, were, we were dogging in the diamond with both of us in it on that hot day. This, this is yeah. true. Yeah. But where do we find that info? It, it's at actually in the POH. And uh, and actually, you know, you talk about ForeFlight. There's some tools in there and we talk, and other tools. I hate to just say ForeFlight, but there's other programs out there that you can figure out, hey, can I do the required climb gradient? It, it'll figure the whole thing out for you if you just plug in the gradient. It'll give you what type of feet per minute you, you need to do. And then you can go back in and see if your airplane can do it for the conditions for that day. Uh, it, it's something I, I think we really should start doing more of. It's kind of like doing weight and balance every time we go out and fly. Of course we do that, right? 
And uh, well, not not always. And I know that there are a lot of people have them memorized for certain certain ranges, but uh, especially when you start bringing on more people, more bags. Uh, so that's kind of the point I, I wanted to bring home there is, yeah, let's look at our manuals uh, to see if we can make it. And take a careful look at that that airport that you're climbing out of as well. You may have different options. Um, you, you kind of mentioned that a little bit. You know, the normal uh, departure might say something like Russia, you know, 500 feet per mile. Uh, but you may have another option. There may be a published visual climb over airport um, or a different route that you could take um, in order to to let you get out of there. So uh, that may be kind of buried there inside the chart supplement um, or somewhere. But you you may have more than one way. Uh, just gonna cat. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because there, and, and I think we may have mentioned a little bit here, but the, you know, look at your obstacle departure procedures. Um, it's a good habit to get into because I fly out of Tampa all the time, so I'm like, well, I'm I'm not going to have too many issues. But if I go, let's see, if I go east, um, there is an obstacle departure p- procedure. And it's like Tampa; it's a flat city. Well, if you're going east from the airport. Uh, it tells you, I think it's like 800 feet that you can't turn uh, south, I think it is, till you get to 800 feet. Why is that? That Well, downtown, there's some buildings there. Uh, and these are things sometimes we don't think about. So I, uh, and this is something I've finally gotten back into. I will say I've drifted a little bit over the years and uh, away from doing this, but I do now, I look, I make sure I stop for one second and look at ODPs or the obstacle departure procedures. Uh, so that des- describes, you know, when I can, you know, when I can turn, I can get to 800 feet uh, before I make a right turn. Incredibly important, especially for uh, areas that are mountainous. And sometimes we look at those there, but we don't do it like in Oklahoma City, which seems pretty flat. Uh, and, and we don't review those, do we? We might but, not, but uh, we should. Yeah, definitely should start start doing that type of thing. So, um, anyway, so good stuff there. Um, how about the yeah. next? Uh, as oh, was that it for the SIDS? What else did we want to? Well, no, talk? that's it. That's it for the SIDS. But actually, your, your whole talk about the performance charts and all really goes into the next topic there, which is uh, of a special concern to multi-engine airplanes. Uh, anyone who has a multi-engine rating is familiar with accelerate go distances, which is how far it's going to take that airplane to lose the engine at the most critical moment, but continue the takeoff and get to 50 feet above the ground, right? Um, so that distance is can be really long, <laughs> especially on a hot day, a heavily loaded airplane uh, with minimal performance or whatever. Well, we calculate this accelerate go distance and find out, oh, it's you know 8,000 feet or whatever it is. And the runway is 5,000 feet, but there's nothing off the end as far as we know. So we're okay, fine, right? If that's a, if that's our our judgment call, um, but there is something that can really help us out with making that decision, and that's the takeoff obstacles listing. So it's kind of related to what we're talking about about departure procedures, but it's another thing that mm-hmm. that was not covered in my instrument training at all. <laughs> um, was you now I I still talk about the book, you know, the, the chart book, you know, in the front <laughs> is all the of the FA books are all the the takeoff obstacles. Um, and that Jefferson has them too. Of course, they're, you know, in our, our four flight or a Garmin pilot, whatever, they're in their own separate sections there. But if, if an airport has a instrument approach, it has therefore then been also evaluated for some kind of a departure procedure. And if there are, you know, little, you know, low obstacles out there that are pretty close in, those are identified in the takeoff obstacles list. And this might say something like, uh, tree, thousand feet from the departure end of the runway, twenty feet right of center line, you know, up to hundred feet AGL, or something like that. Okay, well, that tells you there's something. It could be a pole or a you know fence if it's low enough, or a building or you know power lines or whatever. But it tells you where they are and how far they are from the departure end of the runway. Well, if you know how far they are from the departure end of the runway, you can add your runway length and figure out how far they are from where you're starting your takeoff roll and use that to help figure out, is my accelerate go distance adequate? Am I, am I going to be okay? Um, I actually, I actually used exactly this on my ATP check ride. Uh, an FA uh, inspector was evaluating my check ride, you know, with my examiner and he wanted to ride along and, that was fine. I had no problem with that, but, uh, you know, I wanted to show I was doing my diligent flight planning and 
we realized that our accelerate go distance wasn't going to clear the trees that were charted in the takeoff obstacles. And, you know, so we, he wanted to come along the ride. So I ran the numbers a few different times. So no, it's not going to work. Not going to work. Eventually we settled it. We did most of the check ride without him. And then uh, he hopped on for, you know, one or two approaches at the end, once we had burned off enough gas to go and make this accelerate go distance work. So, um, it was, uh, it, it was very interesting to me how something that you, know, you don't really pay a whole lot of attention to these, you know, there's a fence four feet from the end of the runway up to, you know, one foot above the ground. You don't pay attention to that stuff. And it becomes kind of in the back of our mind somewhere, but then you see this others, well, you know, a, a building, you know, 500 feet off the end of the runway or something like that, that, that really wakes you up. So, uh, single engine, of course, well, it's just another obstacle out there that you have to make it over, but multi-engine, of course, you have more, um, more planning factors and considerations that go into that. So that's another, this is saying, that's another place to get your data to help make your decision. Yeah. Some, uh, great information as far as, uh, everything that's around you, as far as situational awareness, uh, like you were saying there, I mean, it really does, especially if you have a problem, uh, and you know where to start looking for those obstacles and, uh, you know, where you might even want to think about putting down, et cetera. So some, uh, real good stuff, really, really good stuff. Uh, multi-engine aircraft, uh, you know, we talk about light twins everybody says, well, you know, the accelerate, there is no accelerate go distance, but, uh, you know, there is in, in the light twin, you can actually depart, climb and, uh, and come back depending again on your weight and your situation. That's where you go back to your manuals and ch- check out the weight and balance and see if, yeah, can I climb? How far, how far can I climb? How, how high can I climb? Excuse me. What's my rate of climb going to be uh, single engine? And those are the kind of things I think sometimes we forget to do uh, because when we're flying a twin, we start flying out of bigger airports. But I will say one of my students, it really saved him. Uh, he, he figured it out. He actually lost an engine on takeoff and just came back around and landed. Uh, so it's really a good idea to look at those charts. Uh, big believer in that. So I think I drove that home. Um, anyway, so. How about, um, let's see, that was great discussion, by the way, uh, Russ, I really enjoyed that. Um, how about for those of us that, you know, I fly a lot of times out of fields that uh, really can't talk to air traffic control. So I think, Bill, you had came up, come up with some uh, some good tips there. Yeah, we had a couple. Um, I, it sounds like we've got sort of a theme that uh, a lot of things that aren't getting covered in instrument training have to do with how to get the heck out of an airport. Um, and I... You know, we, we talked some about, uh, like Russ mentioned, a lot of our IFR training, we're doing the same thing over and over. Um, typically, you might be training at a towered airport or a, or a, a non-towered airport that has good communication. Now you get your rating and you're going to go out there, stretch your legs, go someplace different. Might be at more of a, uh, a remote airport. And I, or if you did do that during your training with your instructor, you weren't going to go through all the, um, all the different things you have to do to to talk to ATC, to deal with getting a clearance out of a remote airport because it takes some time. Um, one of those things is a, a technique that's used by, by ATC to give you a clearance to get you out of a remote airport uh, where there might not be direct communication with air traffic is the clearance void time. Uh, controllers will abbreviate it VIFNO, void if not off by. What that means is you're getting your clearance to leave this remote airport um, through some other means than talking directly to a controller. There might be a radio relay to flight service. Uh, If they're still around anymore, there's a handful of ways where you used to be able to talk through a VOR. That's kind of going away now with a lot of VORs getting decommissioned. Of course, you can do with a cell phone as well. You can call flight service, the 1-800-WX-BRIEF number, and have them deliver your clearance to you. But they're not really giving you the clearance. They're talking to the air traffic facility that is in charge of that airport it might be a, a an approach control that could be 50 60 miles away even or a center that could be hundreds of miles away from where you're actually at and they're setting up your clearance flight service will relay it to you the controllers can't see you they don't know where you are on the airport um, probably can't see you for some time after you depart and there's really no other way to separate you other than use some non-radar procedures and blocking airspace um, keeping other people from uh, going into that airport of course or um, 
leaving you an altitude that you can get to to get out of that airport. Well, they can't do that forever. Can't block up a chunk of airspace forever for you to come off of this airport to uh, to the next fix or airway or whatever. So what they will do with the clearance is give you a time, uh, time check now, clearance is void if not off by, you know, whatever it is, 1830 Zulu. If not off by that time, your clearance is void. It's no good anymore. And you need to call back to flight service and figure out plan B, whatever that means. They'll usually give you five or 10 minutes uh, after that um, phone call to give yourself some time, get out to the runway, do your run up, whatever you need to do. Um, and then they'll give you about a 10 minute window um, to actually get off. So if your wheels are not off the ground, by that time, you no longer have a clearance and you got to figure out some plan B because they're only blocking that airspace for that amount of time. Now you're coming off this um, remote airport, non-towered, um, probably not radar. And the, uh, the clearance may have this feeds right into another technique that's sometimes used by ATC. That's a little confusing to people. You're out, you're actually in uncontrolled airspace you're in class G airspace. When you depart that airport, maybe to 700 feet, maybe to 1200 feet, depending on where you are, ATC really can't give you instructions and can't give you a clearance in Class G airspace. You will occasionally hear an, an instruction where the controller will say something like, um, upon entering controlled airspace, heading 360 to join uh, Victor123, and then so on and so forth, you're rooting. Um, that's that's not a radar vector. You haven't been radar identified, like Carl mentioned earlier. Um, you're not being uh, given any type of clearance from terrain. That's still all on you. Fly an obstacle departure procedure if there's one um, that applies and, and you feel that's the best way to do it. Figure it out yourself with a chart, however you need to do it um, to miss terrain. They're just telling you, go that away. Uh, to join the airway or head for the next fix, not a radar vector. You won't really be vectored until you hear radar contacts fly heading. But that one does get confusing to people somehow or sometimes um, in these remote um, airports that are non-towered and in uncontrolled airspace. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's happening quite often now because uh, certain towers have been closed. And also some yep. of us depart late at night uh, from some areas that, uh, you know, especially void if not off by. Uh, one of the things I think is important, too, is make sure that if you don't get off, what do you need to do next? What if you have a problem and you can't fly? You need to give them a call, right? Right, exactly. Yes, your clearance, your clearance is void, but if you haven't called anybody, now they've got basically a missing aircraft situation yep. they've got to figure out. They're not just going to start running airplanes into that airport. Now it becomes uh, sort of like a search and rescue because they don't know that you didn't have a problem and crash right off the end of the runway. So they've yeah. got to start looking um, for that. Yeah, and that's really important because that does happen. And if you don't call them back right away or say you abort the takeoff, uh, you really could be inconveniencing somebody else. Uh, so, and, and, you know, interestingly enough, I use this a lot at work because I fly a lot at night into some remote areas and uh, it, clearance void if not off by. And, uh, and if you're not off by that time and you had a problem, say, uh, you were trying to fix, you got to call them and say, hey, we can't get off. And because now you're holding everybody else up and he's doing this air traffic control. See, a lot of people are coming into the airport. Now you're, it's down in the conga line now. Now you're holding up somebody that's 50 to 100 miles away. So a uh, good point. I think, I think that's something that we really need to do, do more of and, and look at different options too. Cause there's phone numbers you can call. There's, there's maybe there's an approach control. Uh, like you said, RCOs. So terrific stuff. That, that was really good stuff. Um, and the upon entering controlled airspace, uh, great, great discussion there. Um, how about other things that we don't really cover on the uh, IFR uh, training normally? Let's see, Bill. I think yours is next. Yeah, this uh, that was another one. Um, let's finally let's dispense with the, the departures uh, off of an airport. I think we beat that to death. <laughs> uh, but uh, like you guys both mentioned, I think we all know um, IFR training. You don't generally go to many places. Uh, you might make a cross country here or there if you hadn't got your cross country logged up. But, uh, you know, everybody's trying to, you know, save a few bucks here and there. So you stick around the local area, you do a bunch of approaches for the most part. And now you get your rating, you want to go somewhere. Uh, now you're starting to mix in with the system and starting to realize that it's not just take off and fly whichever way you want to go to get to places. Um, 
kind of going the opposite of our remote fields now, when you are flying in uh, more crowded areas, busier uh, metropolitan areas, you will find pretty quickly that the system does not allow you to pretty much just take off and go in a straight line to your destination. There's going to be different routings that's that's used by ATC um, to get you this way and that. And some of it may not be very evident to you why they're going the different uh, ways that they're going. Well, if you think, I think we've all seen this now in the last couple of months, right? When you go to the grocery store, they've got shop this way in this aisle and shop this way in that aisle. Well, that's pretty much the way the airspace system is set up too. The big airports have the, the indoor and the outdoor, and they're going to be used and they're going to be full of jets and, and other things like that. And, and in some places, you've got a lot of complicated uh, airports around and the, and the major traffic is going in and out uh, through some various locations. And that's probably not where you're going to be going in your small plane uh, to cut right across there. So there's a whole uh, tangled mess of routings that's worked out between air traffic facilities so they know where to expect airplanes. And those are coded into their system through a number of different um, uh, techniques. They'll, you'll hear them called preferred routes. So airplanes coming from you know city A or the satellite airports around city A going to city B are pretty much gonna follow the same, the same track. Um, and that's gonna avoid uh, the traffic that's going between cities D and E and, and so on and so forth. Um, you will find very similar to SIDS and STARS, but in a more general sense, uh, what's called preferential departure routes, sort of like STARS and, or, I'm sorry, SIDS and preferential arrival routes, sort of like STARS, that, that will funnel the aircraft into that general shape of the SIDS and STARS uh, for, the, for the big airports. Again, to give air traffic a, an idea of the, the indoor and the outdoor, you know, just like driving on the right side of the road. Um, in, in the old days, it was a little more difficult to figure out where those were and, and how to figure out which route you might get. Um, you mostly would just file what you wanted and bring lots of sharp pencils and an ATC would tell them to you. Um, in our uh, recent years, of course, ForeFlight, the solution to all things apparently, um, can pretty much tell you uh, the routes that have been used between different city pairs and and publishes a lot of the those routes in an easy easier form than hunting them down there there once was you know a book you could flip through for that but it was not very um, not very user friendly uh, but our our electronic flight bag software now can help you um, help you do that there was one set of routings that uh, I've gotten asked about a number of times. I heard this crop up in a, in a conversation, sort of hangar flying uh, not too long ago. And it's called TEC, Tower and Route Control. And that's another set of preferential routes as well. Um, and just don't want to belabor it, but wh what is it and why do you care about what Tower and Route Control means? Um, that's a historical kind of leftover thing. Uh, back in 1981, uh, when the air traffic controller strike occurred, um, and staffing was at you know bare skeleton crews back then. The uh, they had to do something to just to keep the traffic flowing. And the centers, the air traffic control centers, uh, were of course hit hard with the staffing. And the jets, the air the airliners at the time uh, were their primary concern. They wanted to keep the load of general aviation and lower altitude traffic off of the the centers so that they could handle the the airlines. So this um, system of routes that would keep the lower altitude and the general aviation traffic within the approach controls um, and out of center airspace was developed. Now, back then, we didn't have so many of the big giant super tracons like we have now, the, the New York and the SoCal's and, and uh, Potomac's and things like that. Most approach controls were just um, the single main airport, kind of small, 40-mile radius, eight to 10,000 feet at the most. So these routes were set up to just go through those small little facilities and keep them away from the center. Now, obviously the system recovered and that wasn't so necessary anymore. And and then the uh, the tracons grew large. Those smaller tracons all merged together, became one big um, uh, facility and their airspace increased and everything. So it kind of doesn't matter much anymore, but there are some systems that they adapted there to keep, um, traffic within the one facility when you're in one of those giant um, 
uh, approach control airspaces. It just helps simplify things and coordination. So if you could make your trip and stay completely within, for example, SoCal Tracon in Southern California uh, without cutting off this one little corner and bumping into the center or bumping into another facility helps keep their um, their coordination down. So you'll see routes like that um, to just, again, keep the traffic flowing, minimal coordination for the controllers. So you'll see those listed um, in the chart supplement. ForeFlight um, pops them right out for you anyway. They really uh, don't mean anything different than a preferential route anymore, but uh, that's what the whole um, reason for those is. Yeah, it's a great, great tool. That's for sure. And a lot of people don't think about it. Say they're in the New York area and trying to get down to where you are or get down in the D.C. area, say, and, and Baltimore, you know, use tower and route control. Uh, it really makes life a lot easier. And uh, I've used it quite often. and I, I think it's great. Sometimes we forget about it. Uh, but good stuff. Boy, Bill, that was great, great uh, uh, discussion there. Uh, anything else, Bill, that you have is, uh, is for uh I think that's about the only uh, the notes that I got. We're looking good. And uh, also, I think, Russ, that was it. I do have one more thing to add. Uh, one of the things that I do a lot of, and I do a lot of interview prep for like the airlines. That's basically my business, and especially on the other podcast. The errors that I see, uh, the common errors that we have in the interviews come from a lot of this, come from things that we really didn't go over much uh, or in depth. Uh, on the IFR check ride, also uh, amazingly enough, some of those basic things uh, they do we do forget. So it's always good, I feel, uh, so that we don't get caught being beyond the check ride, is to grab something to remind us. Uh, and I, I have a different pick of the week, but one of the things I love is the, the some of these oral exam guides. And ASA puts out a great one, the Instrument Pilot Oral Exam Guide. I feel that's a great way to go beyond the IFR checkride is to grab that, review it, and a lot of what we've talked about here is actually in there. If you have any questions, start researching it. So uh, that's how you can get rid of the, some of those errors. I do a whole video series on, on interview prep. A lot of that stuff has to do with IFR procedures and simple stuff. You know, when can you descend on the approach, etc. cetera. Uh, those are all in, or many of them are here in the oral exam guide. It's uh, a great thing, a great resource. So that's another, another thing we can do. We can go into hours and hours just talking about that. But I think in general, uh, pull out the books and, and review. Hey, I, I do it all the time. I'm constantly digging into things and trying to stretch myself, you know, figure out what a sermon route is. And those are, you know, for procedures up in the New York area for airlines, but also this tower and route control thing. That'll actually help you throughout the, the rest of your flying life. That's for sure. So great stuff, Bill and Russ. This has been awesome. Uh, the, as far as going beyond the IFR check ride, beyond the IFR check ride also means, like I said, it's a continual study it's a continual amount of learning and uh, and that's what's great and that's why you know both russ bill myself we all know um we don't know everything so we have to continually try to stretch ourselves and uh, and that's what's wonderful about this topic our picks of the week i'm gonna go first because i really have a huge shout out to an organization which uh i was looking to renew my cfi and uh because of this this whole uh, COVID thing, uh, I was, for the first time ever, I was going to go to one of those clinics, right? And they're in person. Well, guess what? I couldn't go. And I'm like, uh-oh. And uh, thank God that they actually uh, did an extension on uh, your CFI renewal. The problem is that uh, the system, uh, IACRA and everything is set up based on your expiration date and they can't go beyond that within the computers. And you have to kind of discuss it with somebody. How do I do this? You know, can I, can I actually take your course? Can I do it online? And the online courses are even set up. They won't allow you to take them if say your, your CFI expired and it's beyond that. But I will say one thing. I did reach out to many different uh, CFI renewal uh, courses. And the one uh, that really shined was Glime. The Glimes Flight Instructor Re uh, Refresher Clinic, Refresher Course, it was absolutely great because of this, because of the customer service. I know all of them can probably do this, but 
I actually got a call from somebody. I had a question, called them back. Uh, we had a little problem starting starting out trying to get the system running because uh, they had to kind of uh, you know change a few things because of obviously their computer system doesn't allow you having an expired uh, CFI. And they walked me through the whole process, followed up with emails. So uh, the the one thing that you're going to do though with Glime is it's a lot of reading as opposed to the videos. There's some system that you watch a video for a certain amount of time. In this, you do a lot of reading. The only downside is I, I tend to sometimes read fast, and uh, I found out I'd finish the unit, and you have to spend, I think it's 40 or 45 minutes on each unit. Sometimes I finish in 20, so I'd have to go and read it again, uh, and then I'd have to go back and over that. So that's the one thing that I'd have to say is uh, for some might be a downside, but I actually really enjoyed it. It's so my second time using Lime. Uh, they really shine. I really highly recommend them. So go check that out, not just for that, but for all the other courses they have out there. Wonderful little red books and uh, great customer service. Anyway, that's my pick of the week is a Glime Firk. Uh, Russ, what is your pick of the week? Well, you know, Carl, I'm, a, I'm actually in a bit of a quandary right now with my pick of the weeks because uh, I was given a box of books. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, a gentleman I know gave me this, this box. Of, it must be 30 aviation books in there that he collected over the years just from, you know, used bookstores and library sales and whatever. Cool. And, and it's great. I've, I've been going through them. I've read several already. The problem is, I mean, these are books that, you know, might be kind of hard to get, you know, if I recommend, oh, you got to go read this one. Well, that's mm-hmm. a great recommendation, but how are you going to get this book that was, you know, printed in 1952 and has not been reprinted and, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I'm in a quandary. So, um, it's not a book this week. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, I know, I know. Well, we did the interview uh, on That's the last true. episode with with Nathan, so I think that covers that. But uh, so actually, I-, I couldn't believe we have not yet had, as far as I could tell, my flight book as a pick of the week by anybody. This is a electronic logbook that lots of people use. I've used it for years. I love it, and the best thing I love about it is it's free. Uh, you know, it, it does everything that most of the other electronic logbooks do, I, I think. Um, I haven't tried them all, but, you know, it does, you know, the tabulation of times for check rides and 8710 forms and insurance and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it backs up the data. Uh, you know, you can make donations and it'll, you know, back up the data every day if you want. Uh, so it's your data. It's real nice. You know, if, the, if they, if, the guy who runs it goes out of business. It's still your data. You've got it. Uh, you know, tracks of flights, tracks, landings, takeoffs, you know, cross country, nighttime, all that kind of stuff. And, and the developer is very responsive. I mean, you, you send him an email about some bug or something and it, I've seen it fixed minutes later. It's just amazing. So, uh, yeah, so highly recommended, uh, myflightbook.com. Uh, also it's, uh, you know, an Android and iOS app that well, and they all work pretty seamlessly together. So it's pretty nice. And the price again, free, free. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He does ask for, he does ask for a small donation. If you want those, you know, daily backups, which I I thought was completely worth it. So, uh, but yeah, free. Wow. That's terrific. So my flight book, uh, we should have them on sometime. It's, uh, I'm looking at the stats. I mean, millions of flights and uh, lots of aircraft. So cool stuff. Myflightbook.com. I think it would be fun to have them on sometime. Let me yeah. uh, let let's, me let's go find touch. it. Yeah, yeah. But thanks, Russ. That, that's a really cool one. It it isn't a book, but it has the word book in it. That's why you picked it. <laughs> so well, that that's is, is that good enough to, to <laughs> that meet it, my requirement? It, I think still, so. it does. It really does. okay. It's a log book. That's a book. <laughs> well, Bill, what what is your pick of the week? Well, mine's free as well. It's a website, and one I've used a lot. And I, I need to go in and make some uh, calculations, um, altimetry and pressure, and things like that. It's, the website's name is this this guy's name. I'm probably going to butcher it. Butcher it, uh, Luis Montiero. Um, I believe he's a Brazilian pilot who has put together this website with an enormous amount of calculators and spreadsheets, um, uh, a lot of it based on the atmosphere, weather. You can, um, you can get in there and really um, see the, how 
pressure and humidity, and you know, well beyond your basic E6B type of uh, calculations. It's also got some cool online simulators in there for learning different instruments. Got a pedostatic system simulator where you can poke around and uh, make different changes and induce failures and see what happens. Really fun for uh, for poking into that kind of stuff. Um, it is, as I said, the good news is it's free. There's really great simulators. The bad news is the simulators are in Adobe Flash. So I think we've only got about six months left before that dies. I have no idea if that makes this website obsolete. But for the next six months, go in there and play around with it. It's really cool. So LuisMontiero.com. Yeah, I, I will add that it seems like every time I search for some kind of calculator on density altitude or, you know, I don't know, true airspeed or something like that, it comes up with that guy's website. So, oh, yeah. yeah, yep, it's all over. Well, that's pretty awesome. I Just doing some calculations, really, really cool stuff as far as gradients. It figures out the gradient even, even uh, based on feet per nautical mile, et cetera, that you can plug in there. So some really cool stuff. Thanks for that one. I, I think that's awesome. I have not played with that one yet. I'm very excited to go check that out. Uh, by the way, all these picks of the week are on the website, stuckmikeavcast.com, all the past episodes, et cetera. Don't forget uh, yeah, that opposing episodes is episode 126. Just look at the past episodes. If you do have a question, by the way, on some of the things. Uh, we do have a search function on the right. Go check that out. Obviously, you can write into us and go to the contact page uh, at Stuck Mike Avcast and write us and ask us, hey, what do you think of this? If you have suggestions for uh, other topics, uh, we'd love to hear from them. Don't forget that uh, every other episode, we've been putting out uh, weeklies uh, pretty much lately. Uh, every other episode is going to be something like an interview, etc. The 1st and the 15th are going to be episodes just like this where we do a deep dive into a topic. Uh, coming up next, of course, is a series on the 737 Max. Really excited about that and uh, excited to, to do a deep dive into that whole situation there and figure out what we can learn as uh, pilots and uh, general aviation pilots. Well, folks, we really appreciate you listening and Russ and Bill being here and uh, explaining a lot of these really intricate details of uh, what we could learn uh, past the IFR checkride. It really challenged you to go out there and try to learn something today, either read through a manual, etc., on IFR and increase your skills. Even if you're a VFR pilot right now, this might actually spur you to go out there and get that rating. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.